From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Shamira Pereira and Shiraz Daya at the World Ophthalmology Congress. We're going to get a slow burn so that it, it just contracts the iris in a slow fashion. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2016 World Ophthalmology Congress in Guadalajara, Mexico. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Shamira Pereira on laser iridoplasty and Shiraz Daya on refractive lens exchange. I'm here with Shamira Pereira. Shamira, you spoke on a very interesting topic. Um, it's sort of a, 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 an, an existing tool that is seeing broader use now. Uh, and by this, I, I mean laser iridoplasty. So can I have you kind of set the topic up for me? Sure, no problem. Thanks a lot for uh, inviting me to speak today. Now, laser peripheral iridotomy has been uh, uh, has been used for the treatment of angle closure for many years. But what about when the angle doesn't open up? Well, in those cases, laser peripheral iridoplasty uh, has a well-defined use. And it used to be used for, let's say, those cases where there was an acute attack, acute primary angle closure, and you wanted to bring the pressure down, you didn't have access to medications. And this was shown by Dennis Lam's group in, in Hong Kong to bring down the pressure better than drops, quicker than drops, actually over the period of uh, one to uh, two hours. At two hours, it equi- achieve equivalence with uh, the drops, with, with the drops and the, and the in, in injections. Now, the other uses that have become more common are these in plateau iris, we know that, and also more recently in lens-induced glaucoma, so phacomorphic glaucomas. It will still manage to thin the peripheral iris if done correctly and lower the pressure, allowing you to perform the definitive operation of a cataract surgery uh, in a a much smoother way with a clear cornea and without any of the the, the problems that are associated uh, and the time associated with bringing the pressure down by other means. In a recent piece of research we did at our centre, we actually showed that um, in those cases where you have residual angle closure. So residual angle closure is where in angle closure disease, you've done a PI and it's opened up, let's say, from four quadrants closed to just three quadrants. It hasn't opened up that well. We did a randomized control trial which looked at SL, the, sorry, the argon laser peripheral iridoplasty versus xalatan drops or prostaglandin drops. In this, in this case, we used um, a, steadily, yeah. a, a steadily increasing yeah. uh, um, uh, 
group of drops to see which one brought down the pressure better. And now results over one year, there was a better control with the, with, with the drops rather than with the ALPI. So it shows you it's not quite as good as it may seem in that particular indication. The other indications that we use it for is for iris cysts, again, to open up the angle. And if you perform in the right way, it thins the peripheral iris. If you get really right into the peripheral iris, it thins it by about 30 microns, which allows you just the right amount of angle opening for those cases to lower the pressure and uh, enable you to, to have a, a scenario where you will probably not develop any peripheral anterior sinicae. So I, I, have a, I have a slew of questions. Uh, with, 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 you know, for, for patients with a plateau pattern, I you know, understand yeah, that there's nothing, there's nothing to ask there. With... First of all, I, I don't understand, I mean, clearly it's true if you have the data, I don't understand how peripheral iridoplasty can lower eye pressure if the underlying problem is, is phacomorphic. I mean, you've got a lens that's physically pushing things up. Absolutely. How does it work? So, well... It works by the uh, same photocoagulative effect that uh, any argon uh, laser uses, and it just thins the peripheral iris, therefore dragging it out of the angle. Now, of course, I, I must say that there are certain indications for this that, uh, uh, that it's very useful, and certain indications that it is contraindicated against. So, for example, if there's PAS, it's not going to work, right. it's clearly. If there's a cloudy cornea, you're not going to get good burns. If you have got a decreased endothelial cell count, it's probably not the best case to, to do this in. But in those cases where you've got a appositionally closed angle, albeit by a swollen sublux lens, for example, it will manage to, to thin the iris and open up the angle, allow some pressure lowering, especially if it's not been closed for, for that long, just enable it to in you just enough time to get a clear cornea and a much safer phaco, which is the definitive procedure that the patient so, needs. So, it, 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 it is less to do in the phacomorphic cases with using the laser to put the iris on stretch than it has to do with with physically thinning it. Physically thinning it. And there's a recent study which, which uh, has come out of China, I think, which uh, shows they managed to thin the iris by about 30 microns. That's all you need, actually, in, in that particular area. If you get it peripheral enough, that's the key point, actually, uh, it will manage to drag the iris out of the angle reestablishing flow. Now, of course, there are some cases where it doesn't work. And that can be because, let's say, that the, the ultrastructure of the trabecular mesh downstream has been irreversibly Yeah, compromised, damaged, yeah. yeah. And then, even though it might cosmetically look better, the IOP effect lowering doesn't, doesn't occur. Right. But in those cases, one can picture that there's not a whole lot of downside to at least trying out the laser first. Sure. Um, you, 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 you said that, that if, if, the, if the cornea is not clear, uh, that uh, you're, you're, of course, going to have a hard time doing the laser. But, but you also said that you can use peripheral iridoplasty in patients with acute angle closure to lower pressure to the point that you can clear the cornea to doing a peripheral iridotomy. But I don't understand. If the, if the cornea is insufficiently clear to do the iridotomy, how is it sufficiently clear to do the iridoplasty? Sure. It's a question of balance, really. And all these eyes, to some degree, will have a edematous cornea. Now, it's up to your own assessment whether you think you, know, you can get an adequate burn, an adequate contraction burn in the peripheral iris without causing too much damage to the other structures. S similar, in a way, to doing a laser peripheral iridotomy. You need to gauge that balance whether, can I safely do this without causing any damage to the endothelium or the lens underneath? And it, that's the judgment call. So of course, most cases will have some amount of a corneal, uh, co 
corneal uh, opacity because of the, the swollen cornea. But um, actually, it usually doesn't extend that far into the, the periphery. Right, I was going to say that, yeah. And you can actually use other techniques to give you a, a window of opportunity. For example, uh, perform some indentation on the eye just to soften it up a little bit. Or alternatively, you can press on the swollen uh, cornea in the periphery with a formula lens and it squeezes the fluid out. Just but that's interesting. Areas. Yeah, so you can do it in, in those particular That's areas. very interesting. Uh, this is, I think that's going to be my, my, my pearl for me for my own practice from this meeting. Um, so um, let me ask you something that's entirely not fair, but I don't care, um, which is this. I, I, given the fact that it's going to vary by the particular laser, it's going to vary by the sort of contact lens that you're using, Still, what are your typical laser settings for, for peripheral iridoplasty? Right. So as with all lasers, we will start with a, a set amount and... And then the very yeah, titrate it, yeah. Absolutely. But I think that the, the key thing is positioning the burn correctly. Um, the burn, we'll, we'll talk about later, but the positioning of the burn, I think, is very important. It's important to get it right into the angle so that you can almost, if you just look at the eye straight on, you can just see a crescent uh, about half of the, of the spot. And as you go around, as it pulls it out of the angle, you'll find that when you end up where you started from, oh, I understand. it's, it's, it's going to be, more, that's, that's uh, which funny, is a, yeah. a great feeling to have. In terms of the actual burn, the contraction burn that you want to get, you're going to get a slow burn so that it, it just contracts the iris in a slow fashion and, and pulls it out of the, uh, the, iris, uh, the angle. Now, if you get pigment being released or if you can see that the cornea getting a bit more compromised, then that's when you've gone too far. And that's when it's probably best to switch techniques to something different. But starting settings for a, for a brown eye and a relatively clear cornea? 300, 300, 300. 300 micron spot size, uh, 300 milliseconds, and um, 300 milliwatts. So you, okay. can, you can, it's a very easy to remember. Yeah, no, no, just as a, sort of gestalt. Yeah. Shamir, this is really, really, really interesting stuff. I'm delighted that, 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 that you know, giving such a wonderful talk uh, on, the, on this topic. Uh, I'm very grateful for your generosity with your time with us today. Thank you very much. I'm here with Shiraz Daya. Shiraz, you have a, a wonderful talk that you're giving on uh, refractive lens exchange for myopia. And uh, just to sort of set, set things up, um, these are patients who are coming for uh, a, a refractive procedure who themselves are otherwise normal. Uh, and your talk dealt with some of the, the, the concerns about pushing things with these patients. Can I get you to sort of flesh things out for me? Okay, well, you know, the refractive lens exchange as a procedure on paper sounds fantastic because it's a permanent solution with some of these high-performance lenses, certainly the ones we have in Europe, the trifocal lenses. It's fantastic. It gives them distance, intermediate, and near vision, and very reliably. So what's, what's happening at the moment, my observation, I, I work as a, I, I'm a troubleshooter. I see everybody else's problems. They come to me for a second opinion. And I see these patients who are getting progressively younger in terms of surgery, and they're very unhappy. They've got a 6-6 six, six result, 2020 uh, vision result, but they're not happy. And they're not happy for many reasons. They're, remember, when you're younger, in, your, in the ages of 40 and 50, that's probably the critical group. You, you have some accommodation. You've got a good set of optics. You've not developed terrible spherical aberration. You've got no opacity in your lens. And you get, you've got something that you've grown up with for, for four decades or more. And suddenly it's been switched around for something that's man-made with a compromising contrast, 
different set of spherical aberration properties, um, and you're supposed to get used to that. You've also lost, if you're a myope, you've lost your natural ability to take your glasses off and see really, really well, thread a needle up close. And you've got, that's a compromise because you've only got between, uh, depending on the type of lens, 18 and 22% of information coming, of energy coming too near. That's, that's a lot more work. No, you eventually adapt. But these patients, if they're not counseled correctly, they will not, they will, they'll just fixate on the problem and never adapt. And even if they are counseled, it's kind of unexpected. So that's one big problem with, with myopes and, and doing them too young. There are other problems too. You know, they can get cystic macular edema and get endophthalmitis. Even with intracameral antibiotics, there's still a risk involved. They get cystic macular edema and they lose their photoreceptors. If, it's, if, it's, if there's a bit of chronicity involved, well, they always have poor vision again. And they've got a multifocal lens with the macular problem. That's not it's, a, yeah, bad, it's, a, it's a bad combination for uh, someone who, who prior to surgery was, was normal. Now, granted, caution has to be taken with refractive lens exchange patients generally. <laughs> who, what, what sort of, of flags are there or limits are there um, where we should be thinking twice about even considering it? Okay, well, I think, you know, the, the issues are, you know, they're the short-term issues I've just described. They're long-term issues, too. And that's retinal detachment. It is extremely high. You know, it may not manifest itself in the first year or so, and you said goodbye to the patient, but it, the risk of retinal detachment is a, it's a cumulative one. You know, 1% to 2% per year for myops. For myops over, over five, diopt five to six diopters, it's up to 2% per year. And two-thirds of all retinal detachments are in myops, we're above what, minus five to minus six. There's a higher risk in younger people under the age of, uh, of 50. That, the evidence is out there, and that's some, some of the evidence I, I presented uh, this morning. A long axial length, an axial length more than 25 millimeters. Again, correlates with a very high risk of retinal detachment. And um, having a yak capsulotomy, which often these patients will need. Yeah, because, because they're younger patients anyway, yeah. That's right, well, the younger patients, they heal better. And they've got um, yeah, multiple lenses, yeah. so they need YAGs much earlier. But all these are, you know, they all add up, and they can cause big time troubles for these patients. And if, if you consider, it, it's the, the overall risk uh, rate of retinal detachment is one in ten thousand per year. When it goes, it goes tenfold, increases tenfold to twentyfold once you've operated on these patients. So it's got, they need to exhibit a, a, a good degree of caution. So those are parameters. If they've got no posterior vitreous detachment. Don't touch them, because that's definitely a risk factor in terms of getting a retinal detachment in these patients. And they need a good retinal evaluation. They've got lattice-proofal uh, uh, lattice uh, degeneration. You don't probably want to want to touch those patients either, especially the young. So my own criteria, I, I don't do myops until they're over the age of 55. What do I do for them in the meantime? I either send them away if they're in the 50 to 55 age group. I might do LASIK if they don't have dry eye problems. And I'll, I will, for presbyopia, I'll probably just do one eye and I'll do Supercore, which is a presbyopic laser vision correction option from Bashanon. It works very well, but it's an art form like all these presbyopic corrections. You've got to counsel patients well, you've got to choose them well, and so on. Yeah, and it, it's, it's hard, even for the patients who understand what loss of accommodation means from an intellectual standpoint, the, the experience of it is it's, it's a shock. And it's irreversible. Them. Yeah. 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 No, the, these are these are wonderful, wonderful points. Uh, a lot of caution uh, is, is certainly warranted. 
I want to thank you very much for, for, for bringing this, this to us and, and trust for being once more so generous with your time with us today. Thank you. Shamira Pereira is adjunct associate professor at the Singapore National Eye Center in Singapore. Shiraz Daya is medical director at the Center for Sight in London, United Kingdom. Ask questions of Dr. Pereira, Dr. Daya, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.